Matt Shahan is the CEO of a hospital system in North Dakota. And when COVID first came to the U.S., like everywhere else, his state was on high alert. We all kind of were monitoring it. You, you saw the news that, you know, this thing is it's starting to make its way into the United States. And almost immediately, we went on visitor restrictions in our nursing home, in our assisted living, and here at the hospital. People in the community were also taking it seriously. Everybody was really, really gung-ho up front on, you know, we got to protect from this. We, we've got to do what's right. Um, hand hygiene really took off. I've, I've never seen so much hand sanitizer in my life. You know, everybody looked at it in the beginning and, and just said, this is a time where rural shines. We're going to hunker down and we're going to take care of each other. We need to keep this out of our community. And, and we did that for a while. A long while. For months, rural communities like Matt's hunkered down for a COVID outbreak that never seemed to arrive. During that time, were you thinking, hey, we, we did it, we beat it? No. You know, we constantly tried to keep the message to our community that it's coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming. And we're going to stay diligent. We're going to be vigilant in everything we do. It's coming, it's coming. And, and just it, it lasted, that period lasted a lot longer than anybody thought before it got here. After months without a reported case, Matt's community has exploded with cases. And North Dakota now has one of the highest infection rates in the country. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Thursday, October 29th. Coming up on the show, what it's like for a place that's been bracing for a coronavirus surge when that surge finally arrives. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. (laughs) Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Matt runs a rural hospital system called West River Health Services, a network of one hospital and six clinics. The company is headquartered in a small city of about 1,300 people called Hedinger. For people who haven't been to Hedinger, North Dakota, what is it like? We are a a very ag-focused community. You know, whether it's cattle, sunflowers, soybeans, um, honey is a very large industry in our area. Uh, We are, we're kind of in the plains. We're north of the Black Hills, so we don't get, you know, any of the Mount Rushmore pictures that everybody sees. Since March, when the pandemic hit the U.S., Matt's been focused on how to protect his community. The hospital put a surge plan together. They got ventilators and negative pressure rooms ready. And Matt estimated that when the surge arrived, he'd be able to serve as many as 35 COVID patients. But for months, a surge never came. Then, late this summer, the coronavirus started to spread through the Midwest. Was there a moment that you realized, okay, now's the moment that we've been preparing for? We watched it on the state maps move its way across the state. And you could tell it was coming and it kind of surrounded us and you could just feel it closing in on us. But our first inpatients we had were from a neighboring nursing home and we had about 20 minutes to actually prepare for them to get here because the ambulance was already bringing them over. Wow. 
We didn't have time to contemplate anything. They were literally parked in our parking lot. We asked them to wait so we could put the finishing touches on our COVID wing. And that was back in late August. But, you know, it was at that moment where it really tests all of that planning. You know, you can only plan so much. And we felt really prepared. And I, I think in the end, that preparation, the staff on the hospital floor, I mean, they, they just, they handled it very, very well. You know, we couldn't be more proud of them for that. And, but it, it was, it was, it was really, it really tested our planning. And from that point on, we've had patients in the COVID wing. There were no reported cases in your county, Adams County, until July 28th, and hardly any cases around North Dakota for most of the year. But now North Dakota has one of the biggest outbreaks in the country. What do you think happened? I think a lot of it was the fatigue. The state itself really just locked down in the beginning. And, you know, it did. It hurt a lot of businesses. It hurt a lot of folks and their livelihood. And we're a very independent state as well. It's just that mid Midwest, you know, we're strong, we're tough, we go to work sick, we go to work broken, we just push on. And even as much as we do look after each other, I think folks just wanted to get back to their lives, unfortunately. As cases rose in Adams County, Matt started to realize that his original plan to serve 35 COVID patients wasn't going to be possible. In the beginning, the idea was is that we would care for the COVID positives who maybe just needed oxygen, just needed some IVs to you know get their body built back up, and we would be sending the sick patients to our tertiary facilities, you know the larger hospitals in the state where they have um, full units and specialized ICU nurses. But what we found is the hospital beds available. It's a you know every single day. It's a it's kind of a crapshoot. Before the virus spread to Adams County, Matt had been counting on bigger hospitals in nearby cities like Bismarck to take the patients with the most severe cases. This was key to giving his health system the bandwidth to care for 35 COVID patients. But the low bed count at those other hospitals means that Matt's team can't send away the sickest patients. And that's affected his calculations for who he admits to. A really sick COVID patient needs a lot more resources and attention. You know, we need to be available for the sickest of the sick. And at the same time, we still need to be available to do emergency surgeries and those things, that ongoing health maintenance. And so our role is is to do as much as we can, but to know our limits. Because the worst thing you can do in healthcare is to try to reach past your limits. So you were planning on caring for 35 COVID patients, but given the limitations that you've been experiencing, how many are you able to care for now? Right now, we are limiting it to the sickest of the sick at five. Five. In the COVID unit. In the COVID unit. And what we're doing is if they're positive, people who we originally were intending on admitting, we are sending home with specific instructions and we're doing remote monitoring. They're following up on phone calls with, you know, the directions are if, you know, if you start your fever spikes, you need to come back to the ER. If these things happen, you need to come back and we will get you admitted. Part of the reason the hospital is sending more people home is that they simply don't have enough nurses and doctors to treat everyone. Staffing is the number one threat in rural health care even before coronavirus. Nurses are retiring at a staggering rate. Physicians are retiring at a staggering rate. And this isn't helping. We had nine staff members out symptomatic in the last week. And those were what we would consider essential workers, part of the care team. You know, that's a big burden. That's a big chunk of our workforce out who usually would be taking care of those patients. 
And so now we've, it's really coming down to how many people do we have to care for will dictate how many patients we can bring in. Are there ways for you to staff up, like hiring traveling crisis nurses from elsewhere in the country? So this is a concern as well. I know that one of the hospital systems in Fargo, they've just brought in 140 traveling nurses. You know, they're a $5.5 billion company. We are a $35 million hospital. So it's, I guess, simple economics. You know, there is a shortage of nurses and everybody needs them. The going rate for them, it's a concern because then you start running the line of, can we afford to provide this care? And even with the stimulus funds out there, that's a concern for many rural hospitals who are already, already struggling financially. We've done fairly well the last few years financially, but we're competing against those big hospitals who have dedicated folks recruiting. And so they're getting to these nurses before we can. We cannot operate without nurses and, and our physicians and our PAs and NPs. This is one big team and, you know, it's a one big table and when you pull one leg out, unfortunately, the, the entire table can fall. Our housekeeping staff has been decimated at times. Our laundry, you know, our radiology and lab, you know, those teams, they work in tight environments. And so you, if one gets it and carries it back to their coworkers, you know, all of a sudden, if we don't have radiology, we can't keep patients here. If we don't have a lab staff, we can't keep patients here. You know, and there's a lot of areas where we only have one person. We've got certain specialties where it's a team of one. Uh-huh. We're not ever busy enough to have multiple people. Of course, then when we run into a pandemic, we wish we did. As of this week, the state has reported more than 80 cases in Adams County. It might seem like a small number, but for a rural hospital, it's a lot. Matt might have to shut down some of his rural clinics so he can bring that staff to the hospital's COVID ward. What does it look like inside the COVID ward of your hospital? You know, it's it's quiet, I would say, because those patients are typically tired and exhausted, and so is the staff that's in there. It's, you know, we're just we're still trying to keep those patients involved with their family via Zoom or, or other means. How is your staff handling it right now? I mean, you said that nine of them are out with positive cases, but how are they holding up? They're tired. I think that's the biggest thing. The mental wear of prepping and waiting and waiting and waiting, and then it's here, I think has had a, a significant impact on the staff. Uh, we are, you know, you try to be creative in recognition and doing things, but quite honestly, buying them pizza only goes so far, buying them coffee only goes so far. There's not a lot we can do. The scary thing is there's no cavalry on the hill coming to help. From a staffing perspective, we have what we have and we're going to have to get through this. And, you know, from an administrator perspective, it's it's very humbling. It's, uh, it's, it's terrifying. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a clinician of any kind. And so you feel kind of helpless at times with your staff, you know, not being able to step in and do much for them. Uh, but they've pushed through. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually amazing to watch this time of year in the ag community. People are calving. People have farms and ranches at home to worry about. So they work a 12-hour shift here, and then they go home and they chase cattle through a pasture all night long to find a calf so it doesn't freeze to death overnight. And then they come back in the morning and they put in another 12-hour shift. With no cavalry coming to help at the hospital, it all comes down to the community to slow the spread. That's after the break. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? 
That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Welcome back. As I'm sure you're aware, Dr. Deborah Burks, who is a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, was in North Dakota recently, and she was critical of mask usage there. And she said, and this is a quote, this is the least use of masks that we have seen in retail establishments of any place we have been. She's not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I certainly understand that business owners have the right to run their business the way they want to, just like, you know, and I, I've used the opposite argument of it, it is we have the right to run the hospital the way we choose to run the hospital and you need to wear a mask in our building. Um, you certainly don't like seeing such you know, officials of, of that caliber speaking about North Dakota that way because there's a lot of positives that have happened to throughout this that we could focus on, but I'd be a liar if I told you she's, she's wrong. What are your conversations like with the community about how to stop the spread? And what are you seeing from people now that this surge has taken hold there? You know, we, being in a small community, you, you, you know, if you go anywhere, you, you always run into plenty of people that you know. But it's really just talking to them about the importance of it. A few of the businesses in town have now started requiring their employees to wear masks. That hasn't always been the case. And I think that that goes a long way. You know, when when you come into a business and the employees have masks on, it kind of sends the message to the customers as well. And I think that helps. I think people are, even with the fatigue, they're realizing that it's a simple thing. Wearing a mask is a simple thing. Have you seen pushback, though? Yeah, we have. We've got some very staunch rural folks who, you know, believe that masks might be the government, you know, infringing on their rights. And there's been some incidents in the community. Unfortunately, my wife was involved with one and um, my three-year-old, you know, somebody got on them about wearing a mask and things. And Really? T- tell me more about that. Someone was giving them a hard time for wearing a mask? Yeah, it, it started in, in a store and then it carried outside and Basically, he started in on how it was they're ineffective, and my wife's a nurse, and she said that's certainly your right to believe that. But in my training and in my education, I do believe that they are effective, and that's why my daughter and myself wear one is to protect you. And the individual didn't appreciate that, and and kind of carried on some words out out into the parking lot, and you know, and I think it, it shook my wife and and some of the community up a little bit that we need to do better for each other, because in the beginning, like I said, the state as a whole really did jump on top of this thing. And we almost prepared too early. And unfortunately, people were just tired by the time it got here. That seems really interesting because, you know, the outbreaks were not everywhere in the United States. I mean, you didn't have it there in North Dakota, and it was really bad in a lot of the cities. And yet everybody in the U.S. was sort of all in it together, all, you know, strongly encouraged to hunker down and not see people. But it makes me wonder sometimes if that was the right approach if maybe we should have been more lenient in some places. Yeah, I, in the end, you know, hindsight always is, it's, it's great to look back. I still think we did the right thing. But do you think that the, some of those precautions in the early days made some people in the community think this whole thing is overblown? I think that there was a little bit of that out there, you know, kind of grumbling about, oh, yep, this thing, it's a hoax of some kind. But I, I would rather be overprepared 
then have this thing hit and, and have it decimate our communities. And while it did potentially lead to a little bit of that fatigue, I think we learned a lot of lessons that we can utilize now to more efficiently care for these patients as they become sick. Where do you think you are right now in the crest of the surge? Is it peaking? Are we in the beginning of it? We are, I think we're probably at the peak of what is our first surge. And that's that's the scary part for us. Going into winter, you know, we've got the influenzas, we've got the usual pneumonias, um, you know, traumas, because we live in an area of where there's ice and people get in motor vehicle accidents. But when it comes to COVID, I don't think we have seen the worst of it yet by any stretch. Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave people with? I think that it's just, you know, we, we've got to find a way to get back to looking after one another. I can't wait for the election to be over so we can all quit arguing about those things and, and just look at each other as, as our neighbors once again and put everything else aside and, and say, look, we're, we're going to get through this thing together, but it's going to take all of us. We have to look out for one another. And, and if we do that, we're going to beat this thing. We're going to get through it. It's not going to be without us bumps in the road, and we just need to be there to pick each other up. That's all for today, Thursday, October 29th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.